this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. I'm now the executive director of the Restorative Community Coalition, and we're hosting this call on purpose because right now in Whatcom County, we are dealing with an an opportunity to actually make vital, critical economic change to match the needs of the people who are living in the 21st century here, because we are living at a border and we've got 13 ports of entry into Whatcom County. The most valuable resource we have is the natural resources. And it's also the human resources that are of such value here. And yet our county is very conflicted at the moment because we're getting a lot of pressure from external forces to build a very large corrections corporate corporations facility here that actually is contrary to our natural desire for what we want. We all want to live happy and be happy, but we end up just locally caught up in this pattern of of violence unwittingly because it's been done over decades. That's why I was so excited when you said you would step forward and help us talk about why we're so conflicted and confused over corporate money wanting to build an industry here and small local living economics wanting to build an industry. And and why is it not so logical? It was really wonderful to talk to you because you are a real estate person in the commercial world and you understand the importance of location. And the I-5 Slater Road intersection is literally the most important cross-section of our country, of our county, that goes east-west from the Salish Sea to the mountain range and north to Canada and south to Seattle. So we're stuck right in between Seattle and Vancouver, B.C. And you cross the border all the time. You know what the Peace Arch is and what that symbolizes. We were talking to someone yesterday who actually lives in this prison town And she said one of the scariest things is when they brought this prison into town, when they go on lockdown for any reason, it locks down the entire community. And it's like a dead zone emotionally in the city. And she said, man, this is really not wise. And I'm going to have her on another conversation at some point. But I understand that real estate people who are invested in money may want to buy this. That's why I got you on the call. And I'm really excited to have you talk with us. So welcome to the call, Derek. Thanks, for delve a little bit about my background in Whatcom County. Came here around 2012. Uh, I've been doing business since then as an entrepreneur in the county and uh, moved up just right on the border of Canada, right in Canada, to be with my wife. Um, I lived in Blaine, which is the border city of the Peace Arch, and met her, and she's in White Rock, so I hopped the border. So I have an interesting perspective of being inside of the barrel and outside of the barrel, so to speak. A couple of things just from a real estate perspective is that when you borrow this kind of amount of money from the jail, let's say it's $150 million, you have you have a bond and that bond is based upon your credit rating as a city or a municipality and the ability to lend and repay that amount of money. And people say, oh, we have a strong bond rating. And I say, yeah. We, we do here, we have a very high, what's called an AMI, average median income. And they say, well, we can afford it. And I say, yeah, you guys can afford it, but what about all the other projects that you can now not afford? But like anything, a credit rating gets maxed out, just like your FICO score, right? If you take on too much debt. Ferndale is really the only industrial hub that we're ever gonna see get built out in the Whatcom area for job growth. Uh, Bellingham is, uh, very much against it and they don't have the room and they're very much a port city uh blaine is anti uh development which is fine it's a beautiful community and linden has always been agricultural uh so that leaves ferndale which has the bp conoco phillips um industry already there they've opened up an ev factory 
And they're really in the place where if you are going to make an investment in the community in, in a business spec, in a business aspect, you're going to do it in Ferndale. And that's going to take multilateral communication among the officials and the business community. And it's going to take incentives and, and monetary uh, pull to get people into Ferndale. And that's a true economic driver of job growth, which is sorely needed in what we've become a destination community for the Pacific Northwest, for people to afford housing and rising grocery prices and have a quality stable staple of life that we've had prior to 2010, really. Because I've seen the housing market dramatically increase to sometimes threefold in areas. So one, just the financial impact on the municipality alone precludes any other projects being done, which is scary because the jail in it itself is a non-value adding commodity. In a business, if someone buys some bread and they give them $2 and the bread is worth $3 to the individual and it's worth $1 to the for production process to the bread maker, then you have an exchange there of value and everybody walks away happier with greater value than what they've put down. And that's the definition of good business, right? You take uh, your series of resources, you put them together, you promote something that's worth more than the combination of those of that value, you create a profit and the person who you're buying it is seeing that as a greater value than their money. So that's usually the, the normal business exchange of how you exchange value and circulate that within a community. When you have a jail, that's incarcerating that, that essence of value. You are legally demanding somebody be put into an economic disadvantage situation where their labor is now free. They're not contributing to uh, any tax base. They're not contributing to their community. They're not utilizing their skills. And so it's a really one-way approach to mandating value out of an individual. And unfortunately, the law is the one thing that can oppress people uh, without anybody doing anything about it, except for advocating for greater laws, which take a long time. So the, the notion of, of a jail, it incarcerates not only the individual, but also the, the economic value of the community, because you're literally taking uh, money drivers such as job working individuals, and you're putting them into a larger prison system that is meant as a punishment, uh, not as a rehabilitation. So what you're doing is you're punishing that individual, you're taking them out of the economic circulation, and you're punishing that individual, and you're not letting them back up for air. And when you do, and they're released... Um, they usually have to go on some form of public assistance because they're, they can no longer get a job. They have a record. And I work a lot with the mission in town, which is a, uh, a lighthouse mission. It's just, it helps homeless people. It's three meals a deal. And a lot of people there are there and it's very difficult to get back up. So what you're doing is all these individuals, they receive social security assistance, right? So um, checks will come in twice a month and that's what they live off of. And it's very hard for them to get a job for 15 20 dollars an hour and find a place to rent and da, 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 da. And so the mission's there, but a lot of places don't have the mission. And the mission's not there as that kind of a function, right? It's a tie between meals and housing. And we do try and get people up on their feet, but it is a very difficult, and it's a very expensive process. And the uh, goal is for them not to be in that situation in the beginning. And by expanding the jail system, uh, you're going to be putting more people in this, in the, in society in there and it's going to be an uh, economic detriment. So the citizens will be paying for the jail through the bond, uh, which is a seven to nine million dollars of interest a year on 150 million at around six percent. And that could be in perpetuity. If that's an interest only bond, that's eight million dollars. They hold on while you're saying that, I want to back up to two things that you said, and then we'll go right back to that. When we talk about the tax, people are not on the tax rolls. What's interesting is that while they're not generating revenue, they are considered a population base when they run the census. The people living inside the jail do become a census count, which then affects political buying power because our, anyway, there's a political impact from having people inside the community that are listed as part of the population. So it skews um, elections. That's one thing to be aware of. And then another thing that was interesting when you were talking about behavioral health, there is one of the things they're doing in this jail sales tax right now, they're talking about building a facility that does a lot of behavioral health stuff. But so I want to bring those up because that stops people from listening as you're talking, because there's misinformation out there 
about those couple of things. And one of them is that all the behavioral health stuff is post-arrest. So you have to be arrested before you can get all these behavioral health benefits. I want you to continue talking about this experience of having worked at the homeless mission downtown and how that's affecting things going forward. Essentially, it's very difficult to get people back up and it's very costly. And so what you're doing is you're essentially draining the resources over time in an inconspicuous way out of the community and you're funneling them towards a non-value creator, which is generally people that are in larger organizations, whether it's the privatized jail system or it's lawyers and ankle bracelets or insurance providers, there's a number of things that Joy's mapped out on where these individuals suddenly get tapped to pay this and they're not, it's not voluntary. So where in the business community, you can say, oh, I don't want to buy Valvoline, I'd rather buy Pennzoil, or I'd rather, you know, buy a Ford versus a Toyota or vice versa. Uh, you don't really have a choice in this manner. You are, you're, you know, mandated to do this. You're enforced to do this. And uh, people say, yeah, don't break the law. And it's like, yeah, that's true. I mean, don't break the law. And if you're not looking at it as a humanitarian aspect, you can look at it as a, do you want to pay for someone else's mistake kind of approach? Let's say somebody makes a mistake and now you're paying for a jail, you're paying for their meals, you're paying for their public assistance, you're paying for all this stuff. And where is that money really coming out of? And they're not paying, they're being punished. What exactly, what, why exactly would you help? You would help, if not for a humanitarian reason, you would help for an economic reason right? You would say you should structure out the punishment so it doesn't require housing in a jail. You should restructure the program so that you have to give back to society. So you have to use your skills to give back to society. And you shouldn't be deprived of your job and your income because that supports the broader community. Many of our you know, lower wage uh, workers in society are the very bare bones, the backbone of providing essential services as we saw during COVID. So it, it, it really just from a business perspective, it doesn't make economic sense. And regardless of what you think of the sheriff, he's a sheriff and he doesn't really understand business. And for him, when a hammer sees a nail, they want to hit it. They want to hit it. But there's a broader building at work here. And you don't want to you don't want to give all your resources in a community and negate the other things those could go to, like factories and jobs. Instead, you can say we have three prisons. Uh, why don't you use the basis of economics and work with what you get for a greater output? Um, and I think that's been I think that's been said twice already in 2013, 2018, when this came up for renewal. And for me, like either third time's a charm or third time breaks the camel's back, right? Because it's, we've already told you twice, no, stop bringing this to the table, right? We don't, we just don't want it. And you're trying to push it through is what it seems like. This doesn't seem like this is something that makes sense economically. And we've already told you twice, no. So thank you, but stop. And so I think on my last note, it should also be noted that there's about 25 cities in the U.S. that are in their statistical area are over a million. And there are 19,000, around 500, around 19,500 small cities in America. So that's that makes up the large swaths of America. And that's where a lot of people come to make money. It's not going and making huge killings. It's taking $5 from every person in a small city kind of thing. And you need to have a large corporation to do that and to facilitate that. And that's usually why you hear corporate America preying on small town America. It's because they found a way into the pockets of the 19,500 cities that are the majority of the cities in the U.S. Like you only have so many Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, Austin, Texas, Tallahassee, et cetera. Whereas, you know, you have, you know, literally tens of thousands of smaller cities spread across the U.S. We're a very large continent. And so people got smart as they all do in a capitalist society. They say, okay, we've tapped the 25 plus largest cities. Those are tapped out. How do we access the other 19,000? And I think as a personal opinion, it may not be your opinion, but I think the jail system privatizing that is something that every community needs. And if you have a big enough bankroll and you have the law on your side, it's almost a guaranteed profit because everyone's some portion of the population is going to go to jail. And that's going to be the state taxes and the state tax and taxes are the government has a lot of money. And so it makes sense from a business perspective, even though it's not ethical to go and invest in prisons. And I think we see it in the news every now and again, where, you know, people say, oh, judge is convicted of throwing children into jail and having a kickback and something awful like that. And so it's not necessarily just 
not happening, it is happening and our incarceration rate is very high. And we do have documentaries showing that the quality of the prisons is very low. So whenever you have a high influx of customers and a low standard of product, you're going to have a high profit margin. That's just pretty basic. And so I do think it's very lucrative, but it's not very lucrative for the communities that they're in. And the job jobs that they create are minuscule in the amount of if you put $150 million into uh, attracting companies to Ferndale. I think that's where I'll stop from a, from a business perspective. I think one of the things that is most valuable in your conversation is understanding economics from a pure economic standpoint, you could argue pros and cons a lot about a lot of different things. But when you do the value added of tourism, for example, that's going through there, that property is sitting right at a major intersection, like I was talking about at location. And you mentioned that this is one of the most economically critical areas for industrial development. Well, we could put entirely different kinds of economic development that is life enhancing. For example, Loyal Lloyd Zimmerman at one point promoted the Ferndale Double Dome Project, which actually would have had an a recreation center on one side. It would have had a healing arts and community development and sports facility on another side. And in the middle, we could have talked about sustainable aquaponics, sustainable agriculture, local living economic systems, and the whole thing could become this huge energy vortex for lots of little tiny independent economic development projects as instead of just a lockdown facility that looks good if you look at it on the surface, and it certainly has good language on the bond. But the backside of that language is this was designed as a Whatcom County adult corrections facility and sheriff's compound for 2,450 beds. Now, they've never replaced that original business plan as the corporate model. And I've done a lot of research on that. But I'd like to know, Kay Halani, I know that you've come on the call here. I see you. Welcome to the call. If you would like to speak about any of this because you're a businesswoman and you're in the industry. Oh, thank you, Joy. Hi, everybody. I just happened to jump on here just because I'm already uh, deep into this, seriously deep into it. And I wanted to uh, ask a question. I am a wife of an incarcerated individual and I've done a lot of research to you, Joy. And what I just came across that I found was really interesting was I um, wasn't understanding about some of the payments that were going in through the Department of Corrections. And one of it was called interstate payments that was almost $9 million because the Department of Corrections received $2.1 billion from 2001 to 2023. And it actually coincides with the conversation that you are having with the jail being built because some of this money is going to the jails. And mm -hmm. I am look at that as almost quadruple dipping. What I'm trying to go to the public about is bringing awareness to how many of us been have been lied to for so long. And it's in my eyes, it's human human trafficking. And we go back to racial inequity and all that stuff. And I totally respect all of that. But in true reality, it's just really calling out the people that I, I feel very strong about that. Yeah. Leaderships have to be called out. Yeah. Um, the the disparity between the understanding, like the street police. Okay, I didn't even really recognize this, Kehalani, until I started watching what happened under the COVID crisis. When we went under emergency declarations, suddenly we basically went into something which is understand under military-style control in our counties because we're at the border, and it's scary. So what happened is when they locked down the borders, when we have a COVID crisis, when you have immigration issues, when you have all these things, the sheriff becomes the top law enforcement official in the community, bar none. Nobody is higher than the sheriff. So the second in command, of course, are there are other two major law enforcement officials, which is the county executive and the prosecuting attorney. And our prosecuting attorney, like you said, they can carry a lot of weight. He's been in this office about 45 years. He still works at this office, even though he technically retired. He's still called the civil enforcer. And so the kind of power that you carry when you are the corporate attorney for the county, people don't understand that. He told me that himself when I was in trying to talk with him on an issue where our coalition was trying to get the county 
to charge a businessman, a local millionaire, for doing corrupt practices that were in fact fraudulent. And he basically looked at me and he said, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, Joy, you need to understand. Yes, most people think I am the criminal defense, the criminal prosecutor. But he said, my other major job is to be the corporate attorney for Whatcom County. And in that role, my job is to limit exposure to taxpayers who can see the, sue the county corporation because I have to protect the corporation from the people. And I just, I sat back and I said, what are you talking? Oh my God, that was just insane. And I ran into, and I'm just going to say this, Kealani, because you may be able to understand and illuminate how much this conflict happens inside the Corrections Corporation, because you've been inside and outside the prison when trying to work with your husband during this COVID thing. Another conflict that I came up with was when I was trying to get Jack Lowes, our county executive, to stand up for the taxpayers when he was trying, when he was lobbying in 2015 to try to pass this jail tax. And I said, what are you doing? You're supposed to, you work, the taxpayers are, are above you in rank, according to our thing. And he said, Joy, you need to understand something. I don't work for the taxpayers. I work for the people who get me elected. And I started puzzling on that. I walked away. That's one of the reasons I ran against him as county executive. And I don't want to derail your conversation, Derek, because this all goes back to corporate money. And it depends on how we define who our corporations are. And it got me to thinking about when a person's running for county executive for office, he's running as a human being, talking to other human beings, making promises on a handshake that this is what he stands for. But as soon as he's sworn into office, he's not swearing fealty to the human beings He's actually swearing fealty that, to the corporation that he has to protect, that is going to give him money, that's going to give him retirement, that's going to give him all these things. And his job is to protect the corporation. So as a corporate person yourself, talk to me about what you think, Kehalani, and then let's give it back to Derek and talk to him about the economics of this whole thing. I just, I don't want to be looked at as if I'm just this, I think for me strategically why I have somewhat partnered with some corporations is to give back to the community for good cause, just because yeah. I see, I live, I've lived the experience of the abuse of power and how the department has these quasi-judicial powers, which I'm trying to, in some ways, like you said uh, earlier with building these communities, it's almost like a revolutionary thing, but okay. the corporation side of it, yeah, I mean, I hope to be successful in what I do, but I will be giving back to the communities 50%. So it could be looked at as a corporation type deal thing, but I've read the Washington state constitution. It's pretty clear on where we were supposed to be. So the people are the only ones that can. Let me answer that because it was interesting. Sheriff Elfo did go before the Whatcom County uh, Council on a date, August 4th. Did. He actually spoke to this question because part of the conversation that came up was somebody wanted to make a change to the charter. The Whatcom County Home Rule Charter is a corporate charter that turned Whatcom County into a controlled corporation by three executive CEOs. They basically managed the entire corporation of Whatcom County on behalf of the people. When they did that, it turned the county council into a, a weak law enforcement or lawmaking branch and the county enforcement system went directly to the head of the CEO law enforcement branch, which controls the economy and the budgets and everything else. This created an imbalance of power. When the sheriff came on that particular call, he spoke as an individual person, not as the sheriff. But one of the points he made, and you can go, anybody that's listening to this call can go listen to this on the county council um, meeting that night. And he spoke right at the beginning of the call. And he said, the only way that I am accountable to the taxpayers, maybe he didn't say it quite like that, but it was that was the inference, is they hold me accountable every time I get reelected. If you think about that's once every four years. Other than that, he can run, he doesn't feel that he's accountable to the taxpayers in any place else. And he was really opposed to making any changes to the charter. And that threw red flags up in my eyes 
because a few years ago, one of the things that I was told when I ran against the Whatcom County executive, when I filed the very next day, I had three people who were officials in the community who were involved in politics, call me up and say, you need to stand down because we've got big charter issues coming up this year for election. And if you go to the voter's guide for that particular year, there were like eight or nine charter amendments that went up along with the jail tax. Now, the public is actually smarter than most people think. We are afraid to talk a lot of times, but people know, and they voted against that tax. And in the end of that tax, this thing, they mailed out. Can you guys see this at all? It's called the jail report. They mailed this jail report out to the county voters on the same day that ballots dropped. What that means is that this voter's guide, it's all about the Whatcom County Jail. And it had a whole bunch of information on behavioral health services and all these things they were going to but there was nothing in here about the Whatcom County Adult Corrections Facility and Sheriff's Headquarters. There was a whole bunch of non-truths in here. And this report was written by a corporation that was hired by Whatcom County to write this as a spin doctor piece. And this is the basis of what I filed later and 16 other people filed was uh, complaints to the PDC. You can go to our website and you can read the Noble Cause Corruption Report that I filed with the state attorney general's office and the Public Disclosure Commission, 198-page report, where I talk about the catch-22s that we get in when our corporations say one thing, they mean something else, and the public thinks they're saying this when they're saying that, and it's full of doublespeak and catch, what is it called, bait and switch? It's a whole bunch of misinformation that we as the voters have to decipher and break through. Now, in that particular case, the sheriff and the prosecutor did not get convicted of the claims, the violence against the, the PDC violence, campaign violence. But County Executive Laos did get fined. He, got, he, he basically got put on a, a, a form of paper-style probation for five years. The sheriff and the prosecutor got away because both of them are attorneys. And that became obvious after. So the only, what I'm trying to say, the voters have no advocates inside the government corporation systems. The only power we truly do have is the one that the sheriff told us about. You have to vote. Now he's retiring this year. So we have two new sheriffs coming up. But if we don't vote this tax down, then you've got millions of dollars going into the revenue stream that are funding the growth of an entire industry at the border that we can't control. They do, by law. So the only way we have accountability here is as voters to say, no, third strike, you're out, dude. We are not giving you control of the emotional vitality and the health and the economic vitality of our community, we need to take that power back and do an evaluation, not an investigation to try to sue anybody, but an evaluation of what our Whatcom County Charter stands for, how it works, and where we might want to make changes this year because we're up for a 10-year charter review in 2024. And most people don't understand that, but I'm sure the sheriff did or he would not have spoken. Let's go back to economic questions. Do you guys have questions of Derek about how the economics of this whole thing works? Because the economic churn that goes through the community or gets shut off in the community is the importance of talking on this particular call. Derek, since you actually are in real estate and you know the area and what's going on in the dynamics of value of land, where in your network of colleagues and friends, where's this conversation happening to let other people know what the dynamics are? I don't think a lot of people really know about the jail, like in the real estate community. Um, it's not something that has been very much talked about. Granted, I'm not the hub of information, but you know, as far as you know, the groups that I'm on and my colleagues and us, we're not really that concerned. It doesn't really impact the real estate community as much. 
I think for most part, it's just individual citizens not understanding that how much this is going to cost. I think from the real estate community perspective, there's not much buzz because it doesn't really affect us much. It's the sale of a land and and it's not going to generate a lot of income. So there's not a lot of buzz about it. I think from the individual person in the community, I don't feel like they really understand how expensive this is going to be. I don't think that's that information has really gotten out there on how much money this is truly going to cost. And I don't think a simple flyer of just basic cost analysis has been done. I would be very receptive to a flyer or something of that nature if somebody sent me and said, yeah, here's a jail. It's a great idea, but here's what it's going to really cost. And then also the other thing that was interesting is, are we going to have people from outside the area shipping their inmates to us? You know what I mean? So I just don't feel like, I feel like there's they're like a very simple flyer could be made to distribute online to just say, hey, yeah, here's the jail tax. And here's like the nine figure attached price tag plus all the cons. And you've already voted it down twice. So I just think there's a disparity of information for the general consumer. And Bellingham is a very active community in terms of social justice, more than I've seen in other places. And I feel like maybe there's a need for some infiltration of information into the general public. Relative to that, Derek, there actually has been no conversation anywhere. It hasn't happened inside the IPRTF. It never happened there. I served on on as a proxy in the IPRTF for two years. We tried to bring up questions all over this county. The Restorative Community Coalition has been shut down on all conversations. That this proposal, I'm just going to say that real quick, Mel, so you can get back to your questioning. Yeah, but the fun. point is that when the coalition has tried for 13 years to talk to this county, we have submitted reports. We've submitted documents. We've attended their meetings. We've done testimony. We've showed up everywhere. Do you know what? In 13 years that I've been working here with all volunteer and I've submitted reports and I've circulated it to every single person on the IPRTF, on the SAC and to the county council and to mayors and everybody. Do you know what? Not one person in authoritative power has responded to any one of our issues, including the noble cause corruption complaint that was filed with the Fed, with the state, that put Jack in trouble and put the sheriff under investigation and put the prosecutor under investigation. We have not had one response. On April 15th, we reported a whole bunch of material, factual material we delivered to the sheriff, the prosecutor, the executive, the stakeholders advisory team, the incarceration prevention reduction task force, no one responds at all. Yet they're coming out and claiming that they're talking to people. The business people in my experience are isolated in a silo. They are codependent upon the county's approval of permits, of penalties, of fines and everything. They're held hostage to the goodwill of the county executive who controls all the department's budgets in the county. All the police officials are codependent upon the goodwill of the sheriff who holds rank about every single mayor, every single law enforcement agency, everybody in the county. Hmm. And the prosecutor controls all the determination of laws. If anybody files, I filed a complaint. As soon as that, that jail mailer went out, and before that, I'm not sure exactly if you guys read the noble cause corruption complaint, that's PDC case number 1122, or you can go to our website and, and read it directly. It's 198 pages, but inside there, you can read how I filed a direct complaint against the ethics board of Whatcom County asking for honor to the people. You know what? I got a letter back from the public defender's office saying you don't fit our scope. You didn't file your complaints properly and it's not under that code. So therefore you can't, you know what? It's because the complaint was against the prosecutor and the executive and the sheriff. So guess what? No, they don't want to have a, an ethics commission to review their stuff. Every place you go, it's a catch 22 to get accountability. It's impossible. Really? We haven't been able to get accurate fiscal analysis 
accurate financial analysis, accurate reports on the sales taxes that we've been paying in. We've paid in on four sales taxes for years now. There's no accurate way of tracking because I've tried and we even filed a complaint with the auditor's office, Washington State Auditor's Office. And you know what they came back and told us? This goes back to your credit accounting system, Derek. <laughs> when we went to them and we said, here's the problems we have where they promised that this money was supposed to go over here. And they said, you know what? We looked at the way the jail tax was written. And in the fine print, it says that if you don't use the money in certain places by such and such a time, the next year, the money can basically go be redirected into a different fund and can be allocated for other things. A lot of the money that we've paid in for sales taxes has directly gone to planning to build the jail. And as soon as they direct the money to the contractors who give them information on how to build the jail, guess what the jail builder told us? The consultants in the EIS process, they came back and said, hey, you know what? You can complain all you want. You can ask all these questions. We had a couple hundred of them in there. And they were valid questions. What's the environmental impact? What's the human impact? What's the impact on our civic center? What's the impact on the businesses in Ferndale? You know what their answers were to us? That's not our job. Our job is basically, our, we're supposed to plan to build the jail, and this is outside the scope of planning to build the jail. But guess what? County Council, you guys should buy that jail land. And you know what their offer was? $150,000 basically an acre. And you have to buy it within seven days or you lose the option, guys. So our county bought the land. So you get railroaded all the way around. They don't give us the facts we need. There's no fiscal analysis. When you're in an industry and you want to invest in a corporation, they didn't do it in the needs assessment. We actually need business people in this community to come together as a team because you guys are the ones in this business of money. And if we don't understand the real cost of that bond, I had a fiscal analyst and analyst in 2017 at the local jail reform. Now he did a talk and the recording is on our website. And he said that basically at that time, I think it was 130 million in the end, the public is going to pay back. It's going to cost us over a billion dollars. That is a total degenerative. That's a sinkhole sucking direct money out of our local living economy and throwing it up into the bond, big international banking markets. And it's gone. Lyle, I think it would be important to have these fiscal analysis for business people to understand it. For a fiscal analysis, we can run high, high level numbers, but I'm not a, like a financial analyst at all. I know. I think it more my point, it was more towards social media, public awareness, people who already have large follower accounts or speak on a on an elevated platform, just to get some basic information to them. I, I think from a from a high level, it, it becomes very clear that the jail is not a positive thing for the community, but I think it's been maybe pushed under the ballot and pushed underneath the rug, so to speak. And for me, It'd be more of just a couple of flyers given to the right people online so that the ballot can vote it down again. But I'm happy to provide those high level numbers just based on projections of certain interest rates and certain assumptions on the bond. Those are very easy to do. But I think just more like a bullet point of, of the negatives. I don't think jails have a very good reputation as it is. And many businesses don't want to do business in a place where there's a giant jail outside. It just sends the wrong message. Uh, it's unfriendly. I meant jails as an institution, the way that we're administering them is, I think, a bad thing. They're not rehabilitative. They're more punishment-based, in my perspective. To clarify, I would provide the financial analysis. So somebody would say, okay, the jail in the public bid is $150 million. Our proposed bond is at 6%, and it's an interest-only bond. And then I would put that into a flyer or a spreadsheet, and I would say, okay, if you're paying $150 million up front and you have 6% interest and it's an IO bond, interest-only bond, you're paying $8 million in interest and it's a 30-year amortization. That's a quarter of a billion dollars in interest on $150 million. So you're roughly looking at $400 million. If you break that down per capita of $150,000 per person, you're going to be paying them roughly $65,000 out of your pocket plus all their rehabilitation costs after they're out of jail. Okay. Thank you for that. This is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice, and we will return after the break.
At the Restorative Community Coalition, we are seeking donors and legacy contributions for our Restore Life Center. To learn more about the Restore Life Center project or donate directly, contact us at info at therestorativecommunity.org or visit our website at www.therestorativecommunity.org and click on the donate button. Welcome back to the I Change Justice podcast. This is Joy Gilfillan, your host. We do understand fully at the coalition that there are people who commit violent acts and they need to be restrained in a maximum security facility where they can't get out because they're violent. We need humane facilities for them too. But we also need humane facilities for people who are not violent at that level. And we need humane facilities for people who are dealing with mental illness and alcohol or substance or abuse facilities that is pre-arrest and they should not be going into a maximum security facility. That's why our county bought, we paid in 2004, we spent money specifically to pay for 150 bed minimum security Whatcom County Jail on Division Street. I've gone in back and done the research into the development of the Washington State Industries Board that was put into position to help the jail industries co- co- companies become a commodity, a, a, an acceptable jail industry. As soon as the sheriff was appointed, and notice he was not elected, he was appointed to his position in Whatcom County before he subsequently ran for office later as an incumbent, an appointed incumbent, as soon as he came into office, suddenly the entire conversation about Whatcom County Jail on Division Street, even though it had been completed and occupied by 2006, that was all of a sudden downgraded from being a minimum security jail in Whatcom County in the conversation. It was moved to becoming the work release facility. That's a jail industry county, and that's minimum security facility. But the whole point of building this large Whatcom County alleged regional incarceration project, which is what Jack Laus called it in 2017, on record, suddenly that jail is supposed to completely supplement and and you're going to have to tear down the jail downtown. And I don't know, they will redirect the purpose of the work release facility too. When they built the new crisis facility, guess what they did? They dismantled the other crisis facility that was carrying another 15 people. This is what happens. They shuffle from one conversation to another. They change terms, they change knowledge, and they then they betray trust, which is what they did in 2018, 2019, when the county council decided to go do a listening tour after the voters voted the 2015 and 2017 jail tax down. Guess what? They went out and they agreed to do a listening tour. They listened. Sure. They went around and they did interviews on everybody who showed up in all these cities to tell them the problems that they were having. And these people opened their hearts up and talked to the three people who were listening on that listening tour. Guess who they were? Barry Buchanan, the current chairman of the council who's promoting the building of this new facility. Sat Paul Sudu, councilman, promoting the building of this new facility. Tyler Bird, aggressive promoter of building this new facility, all three of them. And so what they did is they promised to help the people. Originally, they said, yes, we need to do a social services needs assessment. And we'll do that. Satpal actually came out to the public and promised when he was running for office, he promised absolutely we'll do that first. We will not be looking at building a facility until we do do the social services needs assessment. The instant they were in office, February, March, as soon as they were inaugurated into office, Sat Paul, I've got the testimony. You can go read it. You can go actually listen to the transcript and read it. They immediately went and they said, oh, Sat Paul said, oh, things change once you become the executive. I had a meeting with the sheriff, with the prosecutor, with Barry Buchanan, the, the new chair of the council, and 
with Tyler Schroeder. And we have agreed that doing the, the services has to come after, number one, we buy, we hire a jail building contractor to pass this tax and get all of our officials online to pass the tax. Then we'll do a jail needs assessment so we know what we need inside the jail. We'll determine what the size of the jail is after we agree that we're going to pass the tax. And then third, we're going to put the social services and behavioral health needs after that because that's what can go inside the jail. That is a complete 160 turnaround and was a direct betrayal to the public. And I can tell you that when you understand that your protectors betray you, which is what I discovered when we did the jail evaluation, that kind of betrayal, that was a direct betrayal of trust to the public. And these are the people who are coming back and telling us, oh, the work center is still medium security. Yeah, but what's going to happen to it after they build this $150 million jail out there that they aren't even, they don't even know if it's going to be 130, could be 150. One of the advocates on the forum just the other day said, could be a lot more than that. There's no promises and there's no commitments. And until we get the accountability and the promises and the commitment, com we need to put a citizen's group into control to check for accountability. I think that's right. What are the values and what are the kinds of, of morality and morals that are the grounding forms within a community? And you were talking about that when you were saying that where there could, what could happen in Ferndale, what could happen in Blaine, the different kinds of dynamics and stuff. As we think about how, what it means to be human beings together, we need all our talent and our skills to figure out how we can save ourselves from annihilating ourselves while ignoring Mother Earth and our relationship with it and how we've always violated it. So we need to look at how we can be in harmony with one another to even be able to figure out how we're going to save our half-grandchildren. We're on a path right now that young folks today to think about your children, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren may not even exist on this earth unless we can figure out how we're going to be doing it. It needs to be a livable community, but we also need to make it a humane community for our workers. What kind of region are we going to be? What kind of area is Whatcom County going to be? Because when you're making some of those decisions people have been trying to make, are basically going to run a lot of people who live here out. Now, they aren't going to be able to stay in this community. It's going to be a flip to a character of a, a lot of wealth and, and, a, and, and, and a few folks. It's not going to be business that much for business people and the average person you were talking about to create that economy here for the average person. So unless we can figure out how to understand how the money works for real and how people are shortchanged, how are we going to be able to turn things around for your children, your grandchildren, that people I think you might want to live in your community? I don't know. The first and foremost thing is just getting the jail not built, right? And then after the jail is not built, working on the socioeconomic framework for rehabilitation. I think the thing that I can do is provide some sort of economic framework for a message for the general community and how that gets out, I think would be important because I think a lot of the citizens don't want the jail, but are uh, undereducated in terms of the negative facts that this thing will have for decades to come. But let me stay on the question of what do we do? It is my dis a clear research after years of trying to figure out how else to solve this thing. Once they get their heads, it's like the gold rush. It's gold rush fever. If you give them millions more every single year, they've been bringing in millions from the 1999 tax, the 2004 tax, the 2008 tax, the 19 or the 2021 tax. How many of you guys even know that the county council using council authority passed one of these percent, one of these 0.01% sales taxes because of the emergencies? How many of you guys even know that the city council, through councilmatic action, immediately after the January 28th event, also passed an emergency sales tax? So they got their 0.02% sales taxes in 2021. After the entire January 28th event happened, where four law enforcement agencies inter attacked, basically, 
they said it was a jail. It was a sweep of the homeless camp. Do you know what? That whole homeless camp, it was only a couple hundred people down there. Guess what? Those people, had they been given an emergency services in the first place, guess what? They wouldn't have had to be living on the streets asking for a place to go to the bathroom, asking for a place to give to throw garbage away, a place to be safe outside of the emergency crisis facilities. Those people had nowhere to go. They'd shut off all emergency services to those people and they couldn't qualify to go into the homeless, into the base camp because they were still on drugs. You can't just go cold turkey off of some of these drugs that you're on, especially when they're medically caused. They put the homeless people between a rock and a hard spot and four law enforcement agencies under unified command who the sheriff is in charge of. They went in and they went in a day early. That's called using the first strike prerogative in OODA loop training and military command training. And they shut down and put, put barricades around everybody. I went down there. Irene was with me. And so were some others. And I don't know if you want to talk about that, who's on the call here, but we were down there. And we watched how people went into complete complex post-traumatic stress reactivity. And they were scared. And we, we created a whole pile of civic refugees running out of that camp with nowhere to go and no solutions from the Whatcom County Sheriff's Department, who was in charge of all emergency conditions. We had a civic emergency and our sheriff didn't participate in that. He was one of the hunters who was hunting people down. This is a paradigm shift in behavior thinking for how our public safety people are supposed to be providing public safety for all people in emergency crises, not just select people. And you can't start use, mixing and matching these things to create problems. I did put a couple of posts and a couple of links into the chat for you guys to look at our regenerative conversations on our YouTube channel. There's the I Change Justice podcast where we've done a lot of these different interviews. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.